0: Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both christian and muslim palestinians for over 60 years of occupation our study leader is mark horton president of ultra clean corporation and a diligent student of the bible our reader is we hold these truths faithful volunteer and dramatist leslie fort thanks for joining in our quest in today's Bible examination, we're still in the book of Acts. We're actually, uh, Mark is with us today, and we're going to uh, continue on looking at it from a thematic, an overall view. So we're stepping back from uh, verse by verse to look at uh, Paul's trials and all the ramifications of those and things we can learn from it. So Mark has done a lot of work on this, and so we're anxious to hear. And as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. Glenn, would you open us, please?
1: Certainly. Dear Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for this opportunity to be exploring your word together, and I pray that all the listeners to this program will really be enlightened as well as I am each time. Please be with Mark as he presents, and he's been studying this really hard. God, I pray that you just speak for him, that he's not worried about saying the right things, because we know you provide the right words when the right time comes about. Uh, as he discusses Paul's trials, this is an important topic As we head into more and more uh, conflict and tension in the world, if we could always just focus on Paul as his example of handling severe trials, God, we'd be in an incredible place no matter what happens in the future if we just were able to follow Paul. So I pray you be with Mark and really help him present as he talks about the themes around all of Paul's struggles. Thank you, and please bless us. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.
0: Amen. Thank you. Very nice, Glenn. And welcome, Mark.
2: Yes, it's good to be back with everyone. We're trying to wind down our examination of Acts. We've seen a lot of fascinating things, which we'll recap uh, as we end off. But we've been looking of late at the trials of uh, Paul which really begin in the 22nd chapter as he is making his defense to the Judean massive crowd that is assembled for the day of Pentecost in the outer temple courtyard. After they tried to rip him limb from limb, he asked permission to speak to the crowd, and that's the first defense that he makes. And then he makes uh, other defenses to various personages and assemblies and audiences uh, down through Acts 26 and we're seeing some common themes uh, through there. We're going to look a little bit more this evening at how Paul viewed his mission to the other nations. The word Gentile is used in the English Bibles, and I think it's a really bad word. Gentile means nation, and by implication, foreign or non-Judean nation. There was only one nation to an Israelite, and that was the nation of Israel and Judah or Judea was the remnant of Israel, and so when they talk about the nations, that word is usually translated Gentile in the English Bible. But Paul was sent by God to the other nations besides Israel, but he also had a mission to Israel that's interlocked, and we've been examining that from a few different angles. We're going to look at it in a little more detail here this evening. We've seen a theme through the book of Acts. We haven't got to the end yet, but the book begins and ends with Christ and then Paul spending the bulk of their time teaching regarding the kingdom of God. This was the obsessive topic in the book of Acts all the way through it. Yet when Paul's on trial, he doesn't ever claim that he's on trial for teaching the kingdom, yet that's what he's been doing is teaching the kingdom, but the way he describes it during his trials is that he is on trial for the hope of Israel, and that his ministry was the ministry of the hope of Israel. And so logically, we can see that there is some relationship between the kingdom of God and the hope of Israel. And I would suggest to you that they are one and the same. The book of Acts would would make that pretty clear, but you'd have to sit back and think about it, as opposed to just going through verse by verse, because you don't see the two right together, usually. But yet, obviously, the teaching throughout the book of Acts, from chapter 1 to chapter 28, is the kingdom of God. But during trials, Paul says that his teaching was the hope of Israel. So again, I suggest that they are the same thing. The hope of Israel was the kingdom of God, and this involved the calling in of the other nations. And this is what the Judeans found so objectionable, and this is what stirred them to rage. That's what happened in the temple in Acts uh, 21 when they tried to rip uh, Paul apart. Well, no, I said that not quite correctly. They tried to rip him apart because he had been seen with a foreigner walking through Jerusalem. And then in 22, as he's addressing them from the steps, he tells them that the Lord Jesus had sent him to the other nations. And they had listened carefully to that point, and then they started acting like wild apes. They started jumping up and down, throwing dirt in the air, ripping their clothes. And I didn't make that up. It's right there in Acts 22, (laughs) even though we're not going to go back and read it. The idea that the other nations would be brought into the kingdom of God along with Israel, they found incredibly objectionable, even though many of their prophecies had told them that in Israel's last days that the nations would be regathered as a part of the regathering of Israel because remember uh, on several occasions 90% of Israel had been sown like seed into all the nations of the earth that's the topic of the book of Hosea and it's mentioned by a number of the other prophets so the only way to reconstitute Israel from being spiritually dead and scattered among the nations was to allow those nations into which Israel had been scattered to come in to the kingdom of God. And this is the theme of the Song of Moses that we find in Deuteronomy 32. And Paul quotes this on several occasions. He quotes it twice in Romans 10 and Romans 11 to uh, justify his own ministry to the foreign nations. What's important and is very relevant to the, our present distress with dispensationalism is that Paul never saw the calling of the nations as an indication that God's promises to Israel had been postponed or transferred or canceled, as many non-dispensational viewpoints claim today. And, And we've suggested that this is why they have been so ineffective in countering dispensationalism, because dispensationalism openly points out these promises to Israel and embraces them and basically says all the other viewpoints, forget about these, or claim that God just walked away from these promises, and yet God said he would never abandon Israel or walk away from her or fail to fulfill his promises to her. And they are absolutely correct on those points, and none of the other end times views that are popular can account for this at all. They really believe that God was working one plan in the Old Testament and then bang, he stopped, just forgot what he was doing, and just started over with a new entity known as the church. But this is not, clearly not the biblical view. And this is clearly not Paul's view, as we have seen over and over and over in the last half of Acts, beginning in chapter 13. Because Paul is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ by quoting from the old Hebrew prophets' promises to Israel. And so Christ and the gospel are not an abrogation of the promises to Israel. They are an absolute and complete fulfillment of every promise God ever made to Israel. God wanted to bring and offer universal salvation. Now, we've got to define that term because universalism has been growing in America and presumably in Europe even as uh, all things Christian or religious uh, shrink and die away. But universalism has become more and more popular And that is the idea that God will ultimately, or is now, or has already saved every human being who ever lived. The ancient Unitarians thought that it was everyone except for ancient Israel who kind of brought a special doom upon their own heads, as evidenced in AD 70. But anyway, there's there's little variations on it, but the idea of universalism is that Almost everybody or everyone who has ever lived will ultimately be saved. And I very much believe that the Unitarian Universalist Church today actively teaches and promotes this concept as far as I understand it. This is not the universalism that is found in the Bible, at least to my understanding. We have to understand universalism By looking at the whole story of God's purpose from Genesis all the way to Revelation, we see that in the beginning, God was dealing with a limited number of families. We start off with Adam and Eve's family, and then Cain killing Abel, and then Seth. And really, a lot of the rest of the Old Testament is dealing with Seth's family there. And and then this Seth's family, down to Noah and then from Noah down to Abraham, and then from Abraham down to Israel, or Jacob. And then the rest of the Old Testament is dealing with Israel's descendants. Any of those outside this family of Israel are dogs, more or less. They're outsiders. They're not in a covenant relationship with Yahweh, and they have no chance. And for 1,500 years, God's salvation was found within the confines of one nation, one ethnic group. Now, there are a few examples of exceptions, like Moses' father-in-law Jethro, and so on. That's not really the point. The point is, is that the whole story, the whole storyline for 1,500 years in the Bible is dealing with one chosen people of one bloodline. But all during that time, we find these promises mingled in that a time was coming in which not just one nation would be given salvation, but that all nations of mankind would be saved. And we have to look also at the idea that Israel was never ever completely saved in totality as a nation, but it was rather a righteous remnant within Israel who were saved during all this 1,500 years. It wasn't just the nation of Israel, but it was those within Israel who submitted to God and a very few exceptions outside of Israel who submitted to God. But again, the prophets all looked forward to and spoke of a time in which all nations would be welcome to enter into God's kingdom. And that's what I'm referring to as universal salvation, that salvation would be offered to all peoples, of all tribes, all ethnicities, etc., throughout the world. But just as with old Israel, it's not every person, but it is rather the righteous remnant within all these nations that we'll get to experience eternity in God's kingdom. So... Universal salvation is within the context of of faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation by grace through faith. All nations can come into the kingdom of God that once only belonged to one nation. As I asked here at our local group um, this past Sunday, we sang a song about the king. And I said, Well, what throne does the king sit on? And finally, you know, somebody said, well, the throne of David, and of course David was king over Israel, and so the kingdom of God, as we're seeing in the book of Acts, is Israel resurrected, Israel restored, and this theme runs all the way from Acts 1 all the way through Acts 28. That's why all the promises made to old covenant Israel are being used by Paul to teach the gospel because it's all the same thing it's the idea that in the last days of Israel as a physical nation she would be transformed into an eternal spiritual kingdom or the other imagery that is used in the Bible is the idea of Israel as a bride to God in the Old Testament she is an adulterous harlot bride over and over and over again but yet through the work of Jesus Christ she is transformed into a perfect holy bride this is one of the two images in revelation 21:22 the other one is the image of a temple physical tabernacle built at mount sinai then becomes the temple of solomon which is utterly destroyed by the babylonians it is then rebuilt It's a physical building, but in its rebuilt form, it is stripped of all of the gold and the glory uh, that Solomon had. So this, this rebuilt second temple is kind of another image of the harlot bride. Her beauty is gone, and the king does not dwell with her any longer. After their return from Babylon, the Ark of the Covenant is missing, the throne of God, and the throne room is empty. And they don't witness... The divine presence, the Shekinah, descend into the Holy of Holies as they had at Mount Sinai and as they had again at the dedication of Solomon's temple. When they dedicated the second temple, nothing happened. God's presence never entered in. So Israel is pictured as a, as a bereft harlot bride and also as an unadorned, empty temple as a physical Israel, abandoned by God waiting hundreds of years for the Spirit of God to return to dwell in Israel. And and the first evidence that this was happening finally was when John the Immerser appeared and he is filled with the Spirit of God and he begins to prophesy and to uh, immerse the people to prepare them for the kingdom of God which was at hand. And he also announced that judgment uh, was at hand. So we have these two pictures of the of the empty bereft temple and the and the uh, abandoned harlot bride, and let's just go over to uh, Revelation 21 and just get some of the idea of what God had had in mind here to change them into. In 21:1, it says, "I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth did pass away, and the sea is no longer." And in in Old Testament prophecy, by the way, the sea kind of represented all the foreign nations beyond Palestine, beyond the promised land. Now, see, all those nations are all being brought in to the Israel of God. Verse 2, I, I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, having been prepared as a bride, having been adorned for her husband. So we see the, the combined image, again, of the temple city and the bride. They're two images, but they're conveying the same image. And then verse 3, I think this is the greatest verse in the Bible and the most often misquoted by uh, so many religions today. I heard a great voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will tabernacle with them and they will be his people and God himself will be With them as their God. And again, most Christians in America today, in one form or another, think this verse says, Behold, the tabernacle of men is with God, and they will tabernacle with him in heaven, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Because we've all bought into abandonment theology. This world is getting worse and worse. And all we got to do is just survive and either we'll be raptured if we're dispensationalists or we will die and go to heaven or Christ will come again and take us out of here. But all of these different views forget the reality of God's purpose, which is to recreate the Garden of Eden to establish the perfect relationship between his chosen people and himself, husband and wife temple and god the idea that god's spirit will indwell us and we will be his dwelling place on earth not in heaven after we die that's what's taught here but again not understood by most folks today and again we see our culture literally being flushed down the toilet because of the all people thinking that well We don't have to worry about any of this. It's it's all about heaven after we die. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no longer, nor mourning, nor outcry. There won't be pain anymore for the first things have passed away. The one sitting on the throne said, Lo, I make all things new. And he told me, Write because these words are faithful and true. He said, It is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the one thirsty, I will freely give of the fountain... Of the water of life. And this isn't just in heaven when we die, it's the kingdom of God on earth, built up of living stones of believers. The one overcoming will inherit all things. Does that sound familiar to anybody? From the Sermon on the Mount, maybe, back in Matthew 5?
1: Yeah, thanks.
2: I will be God to him, and he will be the Son to me. Yeah. (laughs) Mm hmm. Verse 10, he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Again, so many people think, oh, this is heaven. But this is coming down out of heaven. And it has the glory of God. It has light like a precious stone. And it's the city four square. And it has 12 gates named for the 12 tribes of Israel. And it has 12 foundations, which are the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And then he measures this. This is very parallel to the end of the book of Ezekiel. And here's the precious gems that appeared in the Garden of Eden back in Genesis 1. They reappear here as the foundation stones of the New Jerusalem. There is no temple in this New Jerusalem, for the Lord God Almighty is its temple, even the Lamb. The nations of the saved shall walk in its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory and honor into it and its gates will not be shut by day for no night is there they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it so this is not talking about heaven after we die this is talking about the kingdom of God on earth where the nations will bring their glory into and submit to kingdom of God on earth The profane ones, those doing abominations and lie, may not enter in, but those written in the book of life of the Lamb. And in 22, we get uh, the water of life that flows forth from the throne of God. And, of course, we're told all through the Gospels that the kingdom of God is not seen. It is in our hearts. And so these are spiritual concepts that the Bible is trying to teach us using these physical symbols to symbolize God indwelling our heart, and so that we can be His temple and He can dwell with us here on earth. And, and it talks about the uh, tree of life from the Garden of Eden again, bearing 12 fruits for the healing of the nations. And again, no night there. So, this is just fabulous imagery. And uh, if we limit this to heaven after we die, we're missing God's great purpose, which is to bring his power to earth and to exercise it through his indwelling of believers here. Blessed are they, uh, skipping down to verse 14, who do his commandments that have the right to the tree of life, who may enter in through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and whoremongers and murderers, and idolaters and everyone who is loving and doing a lie. And Jesus claims that He sent His messenger to testify to these things in all of the assemblies. And He says, I am the root and offspring of David, the bride and morning star. So again, the connection from the old throne of physical Israel to the new throne of spiritual Israel. The Spirit and the bride say, Come that he was willing to take the water of life freely. Anyway, it's very exciting imagery here. Uh, that's just an overview of it. But but the I believe the Apostle Paul was alive with excitement over this imagery because it was all taking place there in his lifetime. And he personally had a huge, huge responsibility to bring about this image that we find there in the book of Revelation where all nations of the earth could enter into this spiritual city where God's presence shines on everyone and provides life to everyone there. What we see as we go through the book of Acts is we see a definite overlap. There's one generation, which Christ refers to over and over again, that all this would be fulfilled within you know that one generation. Matthew 23, Matthew 24... And Matthew 25, the judgment on the scribes and the Pharisees, the woes brought upon them, and the complete and utter destruction of the temple. These are some of the things that are listed in those three chapters of Matthew. And it's clearly stated that all of those things would be fulfilled within one generation. And so we have this one generation from the cross to the destruction of the temple in which... Old physical Israel exists in parallel with new spiritual Israel. One is being constructed and the other is on its way out. The other is being phased out. But God allows this generation for the righteous remnant to come out of physical Israel and to accept the salvation of God that's offered to them through Jesus Christ. And this, of course, is the ministry of Paul. In bringing in... The other nations, this is designed to provoke physical Israel to jealousy. That's a quote right out of uh, the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. And so the righteous remnant will be saved. And that's what Paul's talking about as he's quoting this in Romans 10 and 11. The entire Roman letter, I believe, is dealing with God's plan to save the remnant of physical Israel before the nation is utterly and completely destroyed at the end of that generation. Messiah was Israel's promised inheritance, according to the prophets. The kingdom was Israel's promised inheritance. And salvation was Israel's promised inheritance. So when Paul says that God has now sent him to the nations to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, and to turn them to repentance so that they might also have an inheritance among those who are sanctified. Who are the sanctified? Well, they are, it's old covenant Israel. They were the set-apart people for God's purpose. But now, all the nations are going to have an inheritance amongst the sanctified. And Paul is saying in his trials that Jesus called him to all the nations in to share the inheritance amongst Israel. To share equally in that inheritance, and that's the great mystery of God that Paul speaks of in his letters to the Ephesians and others. And this is the thing that provoked the Judeans into a jealous rage over and over and over again in the book of Acts. They could accept... The foreigners, as long as they sat in the back behind the screen, but they could never accept them as equals in the kingdom of God. The Judeans wanted to hear nothing at all about full equality for the nations. Let's look at Isaiah 2 as kind of an example of this. Isaiah 2 verse 2, it will come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow into it. And many people shall go and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh to the house of the God of Jacob and he will teach from his ways and we will walk in his paths for out of Zion the law will go forth and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. So this is probably one of the most famous prophecies about the establishment of the kingdom of God in the last days. The Judeans and the remnant of Israel didn't have a particular problem with the nations coming up to uh, the temple in Jerusalem to worship, and they were excited to accept their money. When Solomon dedicated his temple, he acknowledged the nation's wherever they were, and said that they might want to come to Jerusalem to worship the true God of Israel. But there were all those rings of separation. You know, like the Ethiopian nobleman that we looked at early in the book of Acts, he journeyed thousands of miles in a chariot, brought a large uh, gift, presumably, to give to the temple, but he would have been excluded from all but the outermost courtyard for multiple reasons. He was a Castrated, he was a foreigner, and he could never be a member of Israel in good standing. So they would take their money but say, You stay out here, only we can go into the middle of the temple. And so the message of Acts I mean, that's why, and this is overlooked by so many, that's why the Ethiopian eunuch went on his way rejoicing. Because Philip had just quoted from Isaiah to him about how that he would would be a member of God's kingdom of the highest order. He would no longer be a fourth-rate citizen, but he would be equal with the natural-born men of Israel in the new spiritual kingdom of God. So no wonder he went rejoicing on his way back to Ethiopia. We have another one in Isaiah 11, verse 10. And it shall be in that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people. The people are Israel. And then it says, Nations shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glory. So, in the great day, the nations would be attracted to the mountain of God, and will seek The true God of Israel. So there were many, many such promises that were familiar to all of Israel and all the God fearing foreigners. Another one is Isaiah 49, verse 5. And now says Yahweh, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, although Israel is not gathered, yet I am honored in the eye of Yahweh, and my God is my strength. And he said, it is too little that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you for a light to the nations that you might be my salvation to the end of the earth. And the idea in verse 6 here is resurrection, to raise up from the dead. Because remember, Israel, as a people, had been scattered and only... Judah had survived, and even a tiny remnant of Judah had survived. So the the Judeans of the first century were a remnant of the remnant of greater Israel. And the promises were that in the end times, all of Israel would be raised from the dead. As we looked at that uh, a few lessons ago, as comparing Paul's views to Ezekiel 37, the vision of the dry bones,
3: Mark, since you paused, I'm still back in Isaiah 2, and I just looked forward into Isaiah 3, and I see this set of verses starting in 7 that seem to conflict with God's view of what you read about his honoring of the people in the last days. 7 says, in that day, he swears, saying, I will not be the healer. For in my house is neither bread nor clothing. Make me not a ruler of the people. For Jerusalem is ruined, and Judah has fallen because of her tongue. And their doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of his glory. And I showed of their countenance, doth witness against them. They declared that their sins like Sodom, they hide it not. Woe unto their souls, for they have rewarded evil unto themselves. It seems to contradict. I'm confused by this. Are they totally a, corrupt and, and worthless and dead forever, or, or are they resurrected or what? Or well, the it's it different people he's talking about?
2: Well, yes and no. It's really both. We see this in nearly all the prophets. We will have a paragraph of utter destruction of Israel in their last days,
3: mm-hmm. and
2: then we will switch to a paragraph of resurrection and restoration, and it bounces back and forth. And this is very consistent. It causes people a lot of confusion today. But when we see how constant that is from Deuteronomy with the Song of Moses, that's exactly what uh, Moses is predicting all the way in Deuteronomy 32. He's talking about the same exact thing, that they're just like Sodom and that they will commit a crime that is so bad that it is completely unforgivable and they've sealed their doom but yet then he will switch and then speak of miraculous deliverance. This is consistent with John the Baptist who is doing the same thing. He's saying the kingdom of God is at hand, but in in the next sentence he's saying, you vipers who warned you to flee of the wrath that is coming and that is about to come. And so there is always deliverance, but it's always through a, a horrible judgment. And and Noah's Ark, the story of Noah's Ark, is the same story. It's a story of deliverance, but it's the story of deliverance through a horrible judgment. The remnant will be saved by the judgment on the ones that aren't the remnant. Okay, And this is exactly what will happen in israel's last days the nation will be utterly destroyed for her crimes but in the midst of this judgment the righteous remnant will be saved and through the righteous remnant israel will be resurrected as a perfect kingdom to replace the corrupt and dead spiritual kingdom did that jog any memories that, that might show that this is not an exceptional
3: thing? Oh, I agree with you. I've seen it all over the yeah. all through the old testament.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's all through it. Mm-hmm. And it's in the New Testament too. It's all through the New Testament. I mean this is Second Peter. This is the whole theme of Second Peter, where Peter writes, I've written this second letter to you just like I wrote the first letter to remind you of all the promises of the holy prophets and of the apostles. And he's talking about the doom of Sodom, the doom of the flood, and by implication, the imminent doom that's about to fall on Jerusalem and the entire Judean nation, wherever they are, scattered throughout the world. It was about to happen to them in the same way. That's in Who's Second Peter again? 5. Well, uh, Paul <laughs> and John and James and myriads upon thousands... Of believing Judeans uh, in the, the church in Jerusalem when Paul got there in Acts 21. Somewhere around 144,000, strangely enough, that we find uh, in the book of Acts out of Judea. But I mean, just a tiny, a tiny fraction of the nation, but yet enough to complete God's eternal purpose and promises.
1: Hey Mark, can you repeat that hundred and forty four thousand? Are you referring to the hundred and forty four thousand that return or, or that go out into Israel or where did that number come from?
2: Well, that's you know, that's the that's a number mentioned in the book of Revelation, but when we see the waves of conversions in Jerusalem in the book of Acts, we are well up to sixty seventy thousand by the time that the focus switches to Paul's work abroad. But then when he gets back to Jerusalem, James speaks of the church in Jerusalem as myriads upon myriads of thousands of believing Judeans. And so that number is probably over a hundred thousand. It's not a specific number. Okay, but good. I'm just saying that there there's a rough correlation between the number of Judeans who believed in Jesus as Messiah, Yeshua in their language, Yeshua Messiah, and the hundred and forty four thousand mentioned in Revelation and which is a multiple of twelve times you know twelve times twelve and right. so on. So yeah, anyway, yeah.
0: It,
2: yeah, it we just see a consistency there that this remnant it's a large number, but it's not a vast number. That far more of the kingdom of God will be made up of other nations other than Judea because the vast majority of Judea was going to be annihilated for committing adultery and murdering their husband, (laughs) combining a lot of images and stories and so on from the prophets and from Christ himself. Okay. But anyway, good thought there. Chuck and you know good to remind us of all that that the promises to Israel are nearly always a mix of complete and utter judgment with a mix of miraculous resurrection from the dead. Okay, so in the book of Acts, Paul's ministry to the nations is proof that God has been and is continuing to be faithful to Israel. He is regathering Israel. He is restoring Israel. He's resurrecting Israel. But this is not a nationalistic or militaristic restoration. Quite the opposite. God was getting ready to destroy them militarily, socioeconomically, culturally, and politically. And as we've pointed out over and over again, the religion and the people that call themselves Jews today do have some connection to ancient Israel, but they are not the same nation They are not the same religion, and they're not even the same genetically at all. So that nation was completely and utterly destroyed in the first century. The proof that Israel was about to be restored spiritually was the truth that the nations were being called in to the kingdom of God as equals in fulfillment of these and many other promises the ones that we just read, and many others that we haven't read. Paul can say in his letter to foreigners in Rome, foreign believers, he said, My heart's desire and prayer to God is that Israel may be saved. For I testify to them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to to the righteousness of God. And just a little bit later in the same letter he says, what then? What Israel seeks, it did not obtain, but the elect obtained it, and the rest were hardened. The elect is again the remnant, but the rest were hardened. They became enraged and jealous at the calling of the nations into God's kingdom. Israel has not obtained her hopes, which were resurrection, redemption, inheritance, and salvation. But the remnant have received resurrection, redemption, inheritance, and salvation. And the vast majority, sadly, were blinded. So, in Paul's trials, he's saying that he proclaimed nothing but the hope of Israel. Israel was, in fact, in the very act of receiving all of those promises, and this was, in fact, her hope, as he, as he calls it. But the vast majority of Israel were not receiving these due to their disbelief. Paul was therefore free to go to the nations to proclaim that they all might now come into the kingdom everlasting, the kingdom of Messiah. And so that's kind of my final summary of uh, what we've seen in detail in Paul's defenses uh, during his trials from Acts 22 through 26.
0: Well, great. Thank you very much, Mark, for another great in-depth study. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcast. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face.